Welcome to Banyan Books, Branches of Wisdom. Celebrating the joy of bright ideas and heartful lifelong learning. Branches of Wisdom is a series of intimate conversations with the world's most influential authors and visionaries. We explore spirituality and the human mind, ecology and culture. Most episodes are recorded with a live audience. You can join our live events and submit questions to your favorite guests. Check out our upcoming schedule at banyan.com. Since 1970, Banyan Books has been a rich oasis at the crossroads of wisdom and philosophy, offering resources for humanity's evolving paths. We're a locally owned, independent bookstore in the heart of Vancouver's Kitsilano neighborhood. Visit us in person or shop online at banyan.com. Please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews for the podcast. And now, enjoy. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Branches of Wisdom, the Banyan Books podcast. I'm your host, Ross McKeechee. And I'm very excited to be joined today by Dr. Sharon Blackie. I'd first like to acknowledge that the physical location of Banyan Books and Sound is on the traditional and unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, including the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Okay, our guest today. Dr. Sharon Blackie is an award-winning writer, psychologist, and mythologist. Her highly acclaimed books, courses, lectures, and workshops are focused on the development of the mythic imagination and on the relevance of myth, fairy tales, and folk traditions to the personal, social, and environmental problems we face today. As well as writing five books of fiction and nonfiction, including the best-selling If Women Rose Rooted, her writing has appeared in several international media outlets, including The Guardian, The Irish Times, and The Scotsman. Her books have been translated into several languages, and she has been interviewed by the BBC, US Public Radio, and other broadcasters on her areas of expertise. Dr. Blackie is a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts and has taught and lectured at several academic institutions, Jungian organizations, retreat centers, and cultural festivals around the world. She also has a TEDx talk titled The Mythic Imagination. Today, Dr. Sharon Blackie is with Banyan Books in conversation about her newest book, which is titled Hagitude, Reimagining the Second Half of Life. Hagitude explores the powerful archetypes of elder women in European myth, fairy tales, and folklore as a focus for navigating the challenges and opportunities which women face during the second half of their lives. The book is aimed at women who are looking to break out of negative cultural stereotypes about menopausal and postmenopausal women, and so find continued growth, meaning, and authenticity all the way through their last decades. For more information about Sharon's professional qualifications, personal story, other books and online courses, please visit her website, which is Sharon Blackie, which is B L A C K I E dot net, Sharon Blackie dot net. And I want to share 
a wonderful quote about Dr. Blackie from the Sunday Times. The Sunday Times said this, she knows her archetypes, knows her young, knows her fairy tales, and knows her neuroscience, and is sick of being patronized by men who don't. I love that. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in a warm welcome for Sharon Blackie. Hi, Ross. Thank you very much for that. I love that. I just loved that Sunday Times quote. I couldn't have made it up. <laughs> you went yeah, it's fantastic. <laughs> Thanks so much for being here. It's a real pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Our pleasure as well. Now, I thought a good lead-in would be to just refer to your previous book, which you has been described as like a word-of-mouth phenomenon, a bestseller, If Women Rose Rooted. Um, uh, so there's a, a fairly lengthy quote uh, of what you have to say about how Hagitude builds off of that. Then I wanted to ask you a bit about it. So you wrote, in my word of mouth Beth's bestseller, If Women Rose Rooted, I wrote about the eco-heroine's journey, which was based on my belief that a fundamental and very necessary aspect of a woman's journey through life today requires us to understand the nature and depth of our entanglement in and responsibilities to the web of life on this planet. At the end of that book, I wrote that for women, becoming elder is a new journey all of its own. And so in Hagitude, I offer an unflinching, but ultimately joyful and inspiring, extended deep dive into the nature of that journey, a post-heroic journey, and the many ways in which women can flourish during what is so often portrayed as a time of decline. Wondering if you can just give us a little bit more about where If Women Rose Rooted left off and how Hagitude builds from there. Yeah, well, I started to write If Women Rose Rooted, I guess, in about 2014. So I would have been 53 at the time. And I entered menopause rather abruptly at 50. And I suppose by the time I had written and, and, and was writing If Women Rose Rooted, I was very focused on the second half of life but I wasn't really entirely sure how to navigate it myself, let alone how to you know, propose that somebody else should navigate it. I hadn't really kind of figured out what was going on with me for menopause because you know, three years into menopause isn't always very far in, I think for women, it tends to be quite a long journey. So I, I wrote a little bit in the one of the last chapters of With Women Rose Rooted about what I called the elder woman's journey through menopause as a kind of, often shattering cataclysmic initiation but I didn't necessarily know how I personally was going to come through that initiation and what my own journey was going to be and of course you know if you're going to talk to other people about their journey you'd better have a grasp of your own so really I kind of left it not hanging but but without any great um, insights or sharings or anything that I could do. So uh, by the time um, I got the idea for Hagitude, I was a little older and I was uh, much more through menopause. And I thought that I had the beginnings of something to say about it and something to offer. One of the other things is you you help us to redefine or sorry re-understand the original meaning of the word hag. And you've coined this term hagitude. Can you explain to us the, the true meaning of the word hag? Yeah, that's something that I really I really do feel drawn to talk about quite often because you know it I think this is also 
uh, people have different reactions to the word in different parts of the world. So it seems to me from all of my American friends and students and colleagues that the word crone is much more um, accepted in North America than hag. Whereas over here, crone has a very specific meaning in European mythology. So a crone in European myth and folklore would be a very, very old woman. She would be a woman, you know, uh, right at the end of her life. Not necessarily frail, but certainly wizened and, um, yeah, kind of maybe on the, you know, kind of on the verge of death. And that may not be how it's seen in North America, for example, but that is how it is portrayed as a word in European myth and folklore and our own traditions. Hag is very different. Hag, in contrast, covers a much wider age range. So you can start being a hag in midlife and you can be a hag all the way up until the point when you die. And what really differentiates, if you look at the women who are called hag, to whom that label is applied in European myth and folklore, they are women who are entirely whole unto themselves. So they're women who are not defined by um, cultural conditioning or what the culture thinks that they should be. They don't really, really give a damn about that. They're not defined by relationships. It's not to say that they might not have them, but they're not defined by their children or grandchildren or husbands or anybody else. They are just in these stories as themselves, absolutely embodying their own power. And um, because of that, you know, anybody who stands outside of the system, anybody who stands outside of the culture who will not be defined by it is threatening to the culture. And I think that is why hags and the word hag has become so negative a label in, you know, what is clearly a very, very patriarchal culture. And so that's why I think it's worth reclaiming, or at least you don't have to like apply it to yourself, but it's worth thinking about what it really means and why these women are so powerful. And hag to me is, yeah, it, it is that. It's the essence of your own individual power by which I don't mean power over, but I mean the power that comes from your own unique gift and your own unique way of expressing yourself in this world. That makes me think one of the one of the things that you mention is that the well, you start by describing that, you know, this starts at menopause and postmenopause for women and that that journey from there is one of what Jung described as individuation and finding one's true gifts and essence and shedding old layers. Can you help us understand that process a little bit more? Yeah. So Jung uh, really believed that there must be a point to aging. <laughs> Otherwise, you know, we wouldn't live as long as we do as a species. And that, you know, the idea that it would all be over, uh, either for men or for women, um, at kind of 40 or even 50 was just, uh, was clearly ludicrous, you know, that, that you, you weren't supposed to spend 10, 20, 30, 40 more years of your life as invisible, irrelevant, finished, static, no longer capable of growth and transformation. So he believed very strongly that the first half of life was very much about uh, kind of building, creating, creating a persona, creating a, a sense of self, creating maybe a house or a family or a partnership or a profession or whatever it was that you wanted to be focused on. It was a very outer-oriented part of life. Whereas he believed that at midlife, things switched a little bit and you began to turn inwards a little bit more and to search for meaning um, 
in you know in a very very deep and in a very profound way and that is what individuation is about it's about becoming wholeheartedly yourself in all of your uniqueness and that is what you know as i've just explained that is what the hags are in european myth and folklore they have become uniquely themselves they're kind of you know they you you can't copy them they couldn't be anything else they couldn't pretend to be something that they're not they're just absolutely their own essence and to me that is the whole point of individuation as Jung described it. One of the things I love is you you talk about how a lot of these uh, folk and, and fairy tales are still very much alive the the of the the elder feminine archetype particularly in in um, Scotland and Ireland still can you tell us a bit about how those those old stories are still showing up in 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 the cultures in those places? Yeah, I mean, we, you know, we go back a long way into very early Irish texts and see references to old women. When I say a long way, you know, we're talking maybe the sixth, seventh century. There, there are some very, very old texts in Ireland which have pre-Christian threads. Clearly. We don't know how the honouring of an old woman goddess, um, we don't know its trajectory, you know, into the modern day. There might have been periods where it didn't happen. There might have been periods where there was a revival. But throughout Irish and to, an, to a lesser extent, but still very strongly Scottish folklore, we can see stories of an old woman who in the Irish language and the Scottish Gaelic language was called the Calliach, which literally means old woman, we can see stories of her persisting all the way through the Christian era. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, she was honoured as a deity or whatever, but, but there was this sense of a strong old woman who created and shaped the lands. And in the Celtic traditions, we don't have stories of um, the origins of the cosmos, but we do have these stories of the origins of the land and the shaping of valleys and hills and what have you by this old woman. And so she was a very, very important character whose name is still there in... Well, in all kinds of place names, hill hill names, mountain names, uh, village names, uh, stories about her, particularly in Ireland, you know, in every part of the country. So in spite of the efforts of Christianity to, to wipe out this idea of a very powerful, potentially divine old woman, she's still there and these stories are still being told and she is still very much known about both by academic folklorists and people out there in, you know, what we might think of as in contrast is the real world. Thank you. I just want to take a moment to remind our live audience that we're going to be getting to as many of your questions as we can towards the last 15 or so minutes. So please, as uh, Sharon and I are speaking, go ahead and type those into the, to the chat and uh, we'll answer as many of those as we can. Sharon, uh, I just want to share a quote, which leads to a question, if I might. You write that um, menopause, like all times of transition, is a time between stories, when the old story fades and a new story is waiting to emerge. Its invitations are manifold. It's a liminal time when we hover on the brink of profound transformation. I'm wondering if you can speak to the opportunity for transformation that menopause presents in a woman's life. 
Yeah, well, it comes back to that whole issue that Jung identified of, you know, the uh, one story for the first half of your life. We're clearly oversimplifying here, but nevertheless, let's go for it. Um, the, the story of the first half of your life being very much outward focused, building, you know, putting yourself out into the world and the second half of your life being inward focused. But menopause for women, because it is such for almost everybody, you know, not not all. I have uh, come across some women who just like don't really notice menopause. Um, but for most women, the psychological changes that you expect at midlife that I think is shared by many men too. But in women, it is matched by this extreme physical conflagration, um, burning almost. I see it as an alchemical process which completely shakes everything up. You cannot mostly ignore it and it really forces you to start asking questions now uh, you know a lot of people just see that as a bunch of symptoms that they need to medicate and just get on with their lives in the same possible way that they've been doing in the first half of their lives but i think for many of us it really does shake you up enough that you have to stop you can't go on as you were before it's just kind of physically impossible and so i i do see it this initiatory period, this alchemical process where everything that you once thought mattered to you is stripped away. You know, your sexuality, your beauty by cultural definitions, your sense of who you are in the world. If you're a mother, your children generally have left home. It's just like there's all kinds of stuff going on. And it makes you stop. And if you do it, if you if you're paying attention and you're fortunate enough to be in a situation where you can take a little time to step back and you know evaluate what is going on, then I think we find ourselves in a pause. Menopause isn't just a pause in the menses in the in the menstrual cycle. It's a pause in the hurly-burly of our lives, which is intended to get us to stop and to reevaluate. And when we do that at this time of life, what creeps in is what Jung called the numinous, the, the, the kind of the, the, a kind of mystery, the mystic, if you like. These archetypes begin to show themselves to us and we begin to question what not just kind of like in general what we're here for, but very specifically, what are we supposed to do with these last decades of life? So that's how I see it as a time between stories. It is a really important pause in the hurly-burly where we take stock and we start to ask questions of ourselves about who we are in the world, whether we're really offering our gift, our own unique way of being human fully to the world, or whether something needs to shift and to change. One of the things you do so beautifully in this book is weave together your personal story with personal stories of other people you know or have spoken with. And then, of course, the myths and folk tales and fairy tales. And uh, in one of your personal sharings, you talk about your experience with menopause and the anger, all this this anger that came to the surface. And, and you point towards our cultural aversion to female anger. 
I'm wondering if you can shed some light on where you think this comes from and what is beneficial, what is good about righteous female anger? Yeah, I think um, I'd say, I mean, this is a very, very rough estimate off the top of my head, but I'd say about 90% of the women that I speak to, their menopause is characterized by rage. It just, it, it appears to come out of nowhere. Um, I don't think it does come out of nowhere. I think it comes out of precisely 40 to 50 years of the culture not allowing us to express who we are, not listening to women's voices, not taking the feminine principle, both in women and in men, seriously. And, you know, menopause just breaks. It, it, there is a burning going on in our bodies. That's why we have hot flushes. It is an alchemical process. We're in the crucible. We are being burnt back to the bone. And it burns down a whole lot of barriers along the way. And stuff, you know, it comes out, not always in the best way, because we're not taught, A, that that is going to happen to us at menopause and we need to be prepared for it. And B, we're never taught as women how to express anger well. So when I was a child, I was not allowed to be angry. I did have a very angry and violent father, so that may have been particular. But most of the, again, most of my friends were always told that anger was not nice. And as a woman, you know, as a girl, you're supposed to be nice. And, um, you know, you mustn't be nasty. You must be nice to everybody. And so we learn to hold in um, our anger at the world around us, and it becomes dysfunctional. What interests me in that whole alchemical process, that crucible of menopause, is how we can transform what would otherwise just come out as kind of like in you know, a random rage. How can we transform that into something useful? And one of the examples I give in the book is of three very wonderful old Greek women, uh, sorry, old women in Greek mythology, the Furies, who were three old women sisters who were older than Zeus, older than Hermes, older than Athena and Aphrodite, older than the Olympians. And their job was righteous wrath. They were there to, to require people to atone for what were thought at the time to be cardinal sins. You know, everything from being, from dishonoring your parents through to murder. And they they didn't just like, you know, harangue people or um, make them um, feel awful. They, they set them tasks of atonement in order that they may overcome it. And the Furies were seen as essential to maintaining the balance and the order of the universe, because if these things weren't put back in balance, the whole universe would become out of balance and it wouldn't go well. So I love the idea that it was the job in Greek mythology of old women to, to do anger properly in a functional way, in a kind of useful way, and help other people to atone for it. Um, so really, I guess that would be part of my inspiration for saying to women, look, you know, we, we, we can... We can take this anger and we can transform it. We can make it useful rather than just a kind of random lashing out. There's another quote I'd like to share from chapter three, which is titled A Radical Beauty Kissing the Hag. And this, of course, leads into a question. So the quote is, 
through all of our clever talk about psychological and spiritual transformation during major life transitions like menopause, this is what is so often forgotten. You can't do any of it properly if you haven't begun to come to terms with your changing body. In a sense, the journey to elderhood actually starts there, because whatever else we might or might not be, we are all embodied creatures. Now, this you share after telling the story of your own stressful move from Ireland to Wales at the beginning of the COVID lockdowns, which was followed by a frightening decline in your own health. So I'm wondering if you can speak both from personal experience and maybe there's some stories you can share uh, that that speak to the challenges and gifts when you truly are facing your physical limitations. Yeah, I think, again, uh, all of us, men and women, are taught in this culture to just push on through, you know, to keep going, to keep building more, more, more. We have to work more. We have to have more money. We have to have bigger houses. We have to have more of everything. And we're taught that that is more important than our own health, whether it be physical health or psychological health. And, you know, I think that women particularly, um, in very specific ways, are brought up against the power of their bodies and the, and the power of embodiment at various points during our lives. Uh, men, okay, you know, when you have your first period, um, that focuses you right in on what on earth is going on in your body and how you're going to deal with this for the next 30, 40 years. And pregnancy, clearly, if you do that, menopause is another one. It's just, again, you know, as I said earlier, men have psychological symptoms, uh, symptoms, that's a silly word, psychological changes in midlife that cause them to question, just as women have psychological changes, but we have this physical stuff going on as well. So all there, there are so many key points in women's lives where the physical is is out there in a way that it cannot any longer be ignored. And yet the culture still wants us to push on through and ignore it and, you know, carry on screaming, doing exactly the same kind of thing. So I think for many women, and an interesting, interesting number of women, proportion of women, the body at menopause has a tendency to break. And I know so many women who have developed quite serious and, you know, often very debilitating illnesses around this time. And it's a bit of a reckoning because I really do think that the body is screaming out for this time between stories, for this pause. And if you don't allow it, and I didn't really, you know, I was one of those, I was pushing on through. If you don't allow it, it's kind of like it's it's just going to give you a final shaking and say this is not optional anymore. So for me, yes, it was a it was an immune disorder, and then I was diagnosed with lymphoma, um, with a very aggressive form of lymphoma, which happily, be precisely because it's aggressive, was treatable, which I won't bore you with. Uh, but nevertheless, I I almost died, and I could have died. I still could, I suppose. You know, I could get it back, and that sudden face to face. Um, meeting with a body that that you have to recognize has its own needs. I'm making this sound very dualistic, but I do see the body as kind of, I don't see it as a necessarily as a vessel for the psyche, for the soul, for the spirit or whatever. I see it as a kind of soulmate. 
it's part and parcel of our journey here on this earth, the body that we are in. I believe that we're in it for a reason because it has things to teach us. And at this time in women's lives around menopause, if you're not listening to your body, if you're if you're going too fast and too far, then it has this terrible tendency to just pull up short and say, sorry, I'm not doing this anymore. And it's a really, for women who can look at it in that way, who can see it as, oh God, it's so cliche to say a learning experience, but who can see it as, as you know, something that, no, you really need to take notice of this and learn from it then it can be absolutely transformative. And it was for me. So my my journey with lymphoma, I, I saw it as that from the beginning, I suppose. I'm oriented to see these big things that happen in our lives. I'm oriented to see them as a necessary part of the journey. I don't believe that it's accidental. So I was from the beginning looking at, oh my God, what have I done? What do I need to learn from this? What do I need to change? So I entered into it with that kind of curiosity and just accepting that death might be, you know, the ultimate, well, it is the ultimate end of our journey anyway, but it might come rather sooner than I'd imagined. And just saying, okay, whether whatever the outcome is, and you have to at that level lose attachment to outcome in order to learn, whatever the outcome is, what is going on here? What am I being taught? What am I being shown? What is being revealed to me? And it was a profound revelation in so many ways. And I can tell you, as mad as it might sound, I would not give it back. It was that important. There's another wonderful quote, and uh, it's just one sentence you, that I think really sums things up around that transition into elderhood for women, uh, which says, when beauty fades, we are free to command attention in new and more authentic ways. Can you tell us a little bit more? Can we unpack that statement a little bit more? What the potential power that is there for women um, as quote unquote beauty fades, maybe a different kind of beauty emerges than our cultural bias around beauty. Yeah, and this is very individual. You know, women's responses to this physical, we can call it decline. I can't think of a better word at this time in the evening here. Um, <laughs> It's, it's different for different women. A lot of women find it very distressing um, because it is something, particularly if they've been attractive, you know, particularly attractive, it's something that has defined them all of their lives. It's, it, it's tied up with a way of being in the world that all of a sudden has been taken away from them. And so the ground has you know, really significantly shifted under their feet and they don't quite know then how to be in the world, how to present themselves to other people. The persona in that Jungian sense has just literally vanished. It's gone. You can't be that anymore. And you know, a very close friend of mine said that, that all of a sudden nobody wanted to flirt with her anymore. And when she, you know, um, she didn't know how to behave anymore around male friends, um, you know, who, who were uh, platonic friends, but she just, there, there had just been a way of, of being, a way of talking, a discourse that all of a sudden had gone. And she found it quite distressing. Whereas for other women, um, and I certainly found this, I found it Yes, there was a little bit of that, oh my God, that's gone. Now I can't do that anymore. But I found it very liberating. And Doris Lessing, one of my favorite authors in the world, wrote a lot about this, about the freedom of becoming invisible 
um, kind of in a sexual way, in a in a kind of cultural beauty kind of way, the freedom of that because you don't really have to give a a damn anymore about how you look and how you're presenting yourself. It's not that you can't, but you don't have to because other things, other qualities are coming into play. And really, I think what I wanted to do in Haggitude is to just try to excite women about the second half of their lives in a way that is not dependent on a superficial, external projection into the world or persona, but is about that delving into, again, your own unique gift, you know, what you have to offer the world and how you best put that out there in a way that is not dependent upon um, external contraptions <laughs> related to beauty or external judgments about your fertility um, and and your sexuality. Kissing the hag. There, you share you share a story, um, and I, I'll probably pronounce it terribly. So I'll just say the English translation and let you uh, give the Irish. Uh, name uh, the adventures of the sons of Iokaid Mugmidon I don't know if I'm saying that right it focuses Almost. on the character Niall um, mm. and it, it explores that underlying meaning of this concept of kissing the hag I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about that story and, and what is the meaning of this term kissing the hag yeah, so in brief, uh, Niall who is uh, later known as Niall of the Nile, Nine Hostages and who was the first king in Ireland who bridged the mythic and the historical, so he is actually believed to have existed and to um, have uh, given rise to to, to many um, Irish genomes in the world. And he was, to cut a very long story short, he was out hunting with his um, stepbrothers and they overate and they overdrank and they didn't have any water and they fell asleep and they woke up and they were desperately thirsty and one by one they went in search of a well and one by one they found a well but the well was guarded by a particularly loathly lady an old hag who you know was described in all kinds of ways that i can never remember the exact phrases but she wasn't pretty um she wasn't particularly wholesome you wouldn't want to meet her in a dark alley and um and she said to each of them in turn well yeah you can have a bucket of water from my well but only if you kiss me and they all ran off screaming saying no sorry i'd rather die of thirst than kiss you you horrible evil ugly old hag all except niall who um, as the youngest and not um, not not um, not the proper son of the king, he was born out of wedlock. He went last, and he turned up and he saw this old woman at the ha at the well, and she said, "Yeah, you know, you've got to kiss me uh, if you want your bucket of water." And Nile, being a strapping, fine young man of um, typical Irish origin, said, "Well, I won't only kiss you; I'll lie with you." And he grabbed her and took her in his arms and kissed her, and. Um, looked down at her and all of a sudden she had become a beautiful young woman. Now, this is not a story about how, you know, if you kiss an ugly old, old woman, um, your dreams will come true and she'll turn young overnight. And then, you know, it's focused again on the young and beautiful woman. What this appears, you can, you can interpret the story in very, very many ways, but she was a character that is called the sovereignty of Ireland. She was the goddess of the land who, whose job it was to find the best ruler of the people 
the best king, the king who would maintain the balance between the people and the land and the other world that was entangled in the land. And so this old woman was testing these men who were sons of the king, and the only one who passed the test was Nile, and so he became king, and his descendants became king for several generations afterwards. So this whole idea that you have to be able to see beyond the obvious, that you have to be able to look into the eyes of whoever it is you meet at the well and be able to see the kind of power and the value in that without looking at the fact that, you know, maybe she had a runny nose or, you know, her eyebrows were kind of all the way down to her chest or whatever, that you have to look beyond the superficial and you have to be able to see into the heart of things, it seems to me, is is very much the the idea of that story. So yeah, he kissed the hag. And there are many stories in the in the British tradition as well as the Irish tradition, which are very, very similar, but that's kind of the archetypical story, I think. Thank you. Uh, we've got some really nice questions coming in from our live audience. I've got one more for you and then we can get into those. The, I wanted to ask you, chapter six, which is titled Fairy Godmothers and Purveyors of Old Wives' Tales. You talk about mainstream society's view on older women without children as not to be trusted as crazy as not worth our time. One of the reasons being the patriarchal view that women's value is in having children. I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit more on this, how this, this mainstream cultural view about elder women without children came about and how do you address it? Yeah, I think, you know, it's, it is it is one of those classic things where, as I argue th throughout the book, women in, in our current culture um, and, and for many, many centuries have been judged on their fertility. That's what women are useful for. And as soon as we stop being fertile in midlife, then we become invisible and irrelevant and not to be listened to. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the typical role for an older woman in this culture the, the most typical role, the one that is most recognized is that of grandmother. And it's an incredibly valuable role. It can be an incredibly valuable role um, that you, you relate to children in a different way from their mother or their father, that you have a special relationship as a grandmother and that you are therefore able to influence and to mentor and to help in a very, very important way. But that ability to be a grandmother is not open to a number of women who have either chosen not to have children or who have been unable to have children in spite of wanting them. And so it seems to me that, again, the culture really isn't having these conversations about what is there for women who can't be grandmothers. What can we be? And of course, the obvious thing is the archetypical fairy godmother who could mentor, could advise, could help along the way but wasn't necessarily physically related. And the fairy godmother is often, you know, in, certainly in Disneyfied various of, uh, versions of fairy stories, is seen as a kind of twinkly little character with these starry wands and, and what have you. But if you start to delve into the stories, actually was kind of a serious character. You know, she was very earthy. Um, she made coaches out of pumpkins. She turned mice into footmen and into coachmen and there is this sense of the fairy godmother very much embedded in the natural world and in the earth in a way that I have always believed that, that it is women's job to be and I really wanted to draw attention to the fact that there are alternatives 
there are different ways of being that are also very valuable for women who don't have the choice of being grandmothers and that we need to we need to put that out into the culture so that the culture sees that childless or child-free women um, are also valuable and can play a major part in the lives of the younger generation. There's a there's a really uh, great question here from someone who uh, has obviously read the book Hagitude. Uh, the name is Sylvest. Sylvest writes, "You write about seeing the snakeskin when you were in New Mexico. I was there and saw a snake slithering across my path the first day. Can you speak to the meaning and power of the serpent for the hag?" Well, the the hag, and if we look back at the story that I've just talked about, that, that of Nile and the Nile hostages and the old woman transforming into a young woman and, and vice versa, that power of transformation is something that I believe very strongly is not only kind of the point of our lives, but it is something that does not stop at any point in our lives. So I think our job here is to carry on transforming and growing and shifting right up to the end. I don't mean at random, just for the sheer hell of it or the sake of it. I mean that when transformation comes around, we have to be able to embrace it, no matter how old we are. And I think that that is built into some of those old stories like the, you know, the kissing the hag stories. And the serpent or the snake, clearly, you know, in European mythology is absolutely bound up with transformation. That wonderful slipping off of the skin that snakes do several times during their lives in order to allow a new skin to grow is a really wonderful metaphor for that. And so serpents and snakes have been associated with with very much with the with the feminine, um, but particularly with the feminine power of creativity and constant transformation. And if you again, if you look at a woman's life, in terms of the physical journey, we are constantly shape-shifting. We shape-shift at Menarche. We shape-shift in pregnancy if we do that. We shape-shift in menopause. We have another physical layer stripped off. We are shape-shifting and transforming physically right up to the end. And for me, the trick is psychologically to keep up with that and to see it not just as a purely physical phenomenon, but one that is taking us along on a particular trajectory of constant growth and reinvention, a constant process of becoming. And that to me is what the snake represents with its constant ability to shed its skin and leave the old husk of a skin behind it, the old story, if you like, behind it, and then to grow into a new skin and a new story. Thank you. And, and thanks to Sylvester for that question. Uh, there's another one here from West Coast Kelp. Uh, which is, I am interested in how this image of the hag meshes with the wise woman and also the traditional role of elders in indigenous and First Nations cultures, many of which nations are led by women. Uh, yeah, um, 
I don't really like to talk about other indigenous cultures because they're not mine. And I'm always aware that I might misinterpret, um, you know, some, some of their stories, but certainly from uh, my own friends in indigenous cultures uh, in North America do tell me very much that that is the case, that their elder women are respected. And um, I came across some reference from another friend that I know who has grown up in the South African tradition, that in, in the Bushman tradition, the San people, in the Bushman tradition, there was also a particular sense of a power of old women who had not had children. So they were particularly powerful. They were particularly special because that creative energy had been put into um, had not been put into creating kind of physical life, but was still in some way retained in them so that they could put it out. And having answered that, um, Ross, I'm really sorry, I've completely forgotten the first half of the question. Oh, sure, sure. Yeah, the first half of the question, let me just scroll up again here. It says, I'm interested in how this image of the hag oh, the wise meshes woman. with the wise woman. Yeah, okay. So to me, the wise woman, as I write in, in, um, in Haggitude, the wise woman is one archetype of the hag it's one way of being an elder woman and um you know it very much depends on the particular traditions that you're talking about so in my traditions the the kind of traditions of ireland and britain the the celtic traditions and slightly wider um the wise woman has a particular role so she's not just a herbalist as is often the case in in some other traditions the wise woman uh, who would be known in irish as the ban fasa literally the woman the woman of wisdom um, had a particular role in the community where she was kind of the intermediary between the people and the other world. So she would be kind of like a, I don't know, like a psychic, I suppose, who would, um, she would be able to do all kinds of things. She would be also shamanic in, in a sense that she would journey to the land of what are now called the fairies uh, or what we used to call and still do in many um, parts of, of the culture, the other world. And she would, for example, ask the fairies advice about how certain things should be done or where to find a missing cow um, or where to find missing objects or keys or whatever. And she would be called in when somebody was psychologically distressed and she would go again and journey into the other world and ask the denizens of the other world what advice she should give. So in the these traditions, the wise woman um, had this really, really important job where she could access the other world and the wisdom of the other world and bring it back. So that is a particular archetype, a particular way of being an elder woman, but it's not the only way. We have the other ways that would be, you know, the, the truth teller, the trickster, um, the fairy godmother, as Ross has already spoken about, uh, the dangerous old woman, many, many other types of archetypal old women, and this was would be one of them, but a really interesting one, I think. Thank you. And thanks for that question, West Coast Kelp. The, there's there's a, a nice one here from Patricia, who's uh, obviously also read Hagitude. So it's nice that there's people with questions that have read the book. This one says, the ultimate transformation is, of course, death. You touch on the need to befriend death in Hagitude. Could you comment further, please? Yeah. Um, 
I guess that's been something that's been very important to me through the second half of my life. So in in the book, um, for those of you who haven't read it, I'll I'll just mention this briefly. I talk also about my experience on my about my third midlife crisis when I was in my late thirties and living in America at the time, when I I, I had I had been. I had I had failed to get out of a corporate job that I knew I had to leave. I had failed to make big changes in my life out of fear because I felt as a result of my childhood, my background, that I needed to be safe and I needed security and I was fearful and I was anxious all the time. And I had a very, very strong feeling that if I didn't learn to look death in the face and really kind of face up to it, I'd never fully learn how to live. And so in spite of a fear of flying, I decided to learn to fly. And that exp- and every time, I can tell you, every time I got in that plane, I was convinced that I could possibly die. And I can also assure you the accident statistics at the time in small planes in America bore that out. That was not a mad thing. Um, so every time I got in that plane and I flew, I was aware of death at my side. But it was a beautiful experience. It was a remarkable experience. You know, the freedom of the skies and what have you. And so I learned to think of death at my side, not in a very negative way, not as an enemy, but as just somebody that was just going to be there at my side. And then, you know, I didn't fly anymore and I forgot about all of that. And then when lymphoma came along, I, I was thrown up against that idea again, that sense that this experience of coming face to face with death again has come at a point where I need to make another transformation that I'm resisting in some way. And in order to live, you have to be able to die. You know, in order to love the light, you have to accept the dark. We, everything, we see everything, and I don't see them as opposites, but we see everything in this kind of, um, binary kind of situation the the one the one reflects light upon the other the one illuminates the other is what i'm clumsily trying to say here and i really did feel that if i didn't come to terms with death if i didn't think about what that meant and you know how how i saw death then i wouldn't get through it that and now having got through it i really do feel as if death is a constant companion along the way um, I'm not traveling along her path yet, but I will one day. And when I do, I won't resist it because I'll already have begun to understand, begun to interrogate what death means in the context of living a very full life. I'm not sure I've done that very coherently. It's really, really difficult to put into words, but um, that's probably the best I can do. Thank you. There's a question from Heather here. This is an interesting one. Heather says, proud hag here. What is the name for a male equivalent of a hag? One who, <laughs> one who rejects the to- toxic masculine culture, but remains in their male energy. Uh, I don't know that there is a single name. Uh, it's an interesting one. One, one, of the, one of the archetypal characters that I have spent a long time investigating and this isn't really an answer to your question but it's kind of half an an answer i I think i suppose what i'm trying to say is that there are lots of there are lots of archetypes of male elderhood too undoubtedly out there i don't feel 
that it's my job to write them as a woman, and I wish that there would be a man who would write them. But I do want to say that one of the the archetypes that I've been particularly attached to, and it's a character that I studied uh, quite extensively and did some research on when I was doing my master's degree in Celtic studies and Celtic myth and folklore, and that is the figure of the wild man, who is a really, really important character, both historically and folklorically, in European medieval culture. There was, there was a whole bunch of stories about wild men who were prophets, slightly mad, actually quite often quite mad, <laughs> who lived mostly in the woods and, you know, long straggly hair and all of the rest of it. But they could see things that nobody else could. And I guess the, the, the classic example of that would be a character uh, in the north, from the north of Britain, known as Merlin, who was later turned into Merlin um, by a later medieval writer. And in his original incarnation, he was one of those who uh, often they turned mad because there were things in the world they could not tolerate. So sometimes they turned mad because of the grief and the excesses of battle. They just couldn't face, you know, what the world was doing. And so they just effectively lost it and went in, went into the woods. But because they had lost that contact with civilization, their other senses began to grow and to develop. And they began to see things that people who were still embroiled in the culture and the wars and all of the rest of it could not. So there is such a really rich um, vein to be found in that European medieval wild man. I'm sure there are many, many more, and I would really love to see someone take that on who has a stake in it. There's a question from someone just going by S. S says, could you speak to female leadership? How can women approach the increasing organized violence against women? Iran comes to mind right now, but also rape culture, domestic violence, etc. Yeah, you know, I one of the things that I, I talk about in Haggitude, in fact, all of my books, is that I, I think that each of us does have our own particular gifts and our own particular skills in the world, our own particular orientation to the world, which reflects at some very deep level who we are. And one of the archetypes that I talk about in Haggitude is, is an archetype that you could think of as kind of like, you know, the activist. Um, I am not that person. Uh, that's not my gift. That kind of leadership, that kind of activism, Avert activism is not my skill. My skill is kind of the undermining kind of activism. You know, I write the books that I want to to kind of creep into the culture and like a virus and kind of infect people, which is a different way of a different kind of activism. It's still a sacred activism, but it's coming from a different place. So I don't really know how to answer that question for you because that kind of leadership mm -hmm. is not something that I really relate to. Um, but there will be, I'm sure, many women out there that you could look to. I, I always think of people like Joanna Macy as kind of someone who bridges both of those aspects, you know, the inner, the, the kind of Buddhist Joanna Macy, but also the very outspoken um, woman in in um, in defense of the planet. Um, and I think that there are many, many people out there that we can look to for inspiration, but I wouldn't probably be the one to give it to you. I think we have time for one more audience question before we wrap up here, Sharon. This one is from Barbara. 
Barbara says, can you address the elder woman, Baba Yaga, in story and myth? Oh, yeah, she's just my favorite. She, I th so many women love Baba Yaga. And I really had to think, you know, very deeply about why that was. And I think there is a, a yearning in, in so many of us, even if we see our job, our role, our gift to be out there in the world visible. I think in many of us, there is a yearning to just be able to step back into the woods. And the, the, the enchanted forest of Baba Yaga is, is kind of a safe place as well as a magical place um, for, for her. And she is the archetype of the dangerous old woman who is the one who tests the young people. And she tests them in a very serious way. She tests them to the point of death. If you don't fail, uh, if you don't pass Baba Yaga's tests, you'll probably be eaten. Um, you're not just going to walk out and say, oh, well, that didn't go well. You know, there are really, really serious consequences. And I'm a fan of consequences in stories like that. So there is something very compelling about the fact that she doesn't mess about. She means it. Um, she means to test you in order to bring out everything that you are, everything that you're capable of, you know, the essence of your gift. <coughs> and of course, then we have all of the wonderful appurtenances like the house on chicken legs and the pestle and mortar that she uses to fly around the sky and her horsemen who are dawn and midday and night and what have you. And I think that there is just something profoundly magical about that character that appeals to, to a large number of women. But her major role is as the tester, the one who initiates the younger people so that they in turn transform and become the best that they can be or die trying. Thank you to everyone for your wonderful questions. Before we close, Sharon, I know you, you're offering a, a year-long membership program for those who want to go deeper into the learnings around Hagitude. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, it began on October the 1st, but, but um, you know, it's a year-long detailed program. So we are taking, we're still taking um, sign-ups. And what I'm trying to do there is not, it's not just a question of going through the book because you can do that yourselves without, without me. It's very much um, an effort to bring together a group of women who want to really ask questions about how we can change the way that women, that older women are perceived in the world and how we can change ourselves and what resources we need to help other women who are coming up into perimenopause, into menopause, into elderhood. What can we offer them as tools to make it a little bit easier for them than it was for us? So it's kind of a collaborative, creative year-long program rather than a kind of taught type of thing. But we have all kinds of wonderful uh, speakers and teachers as well as um, focus on dream work, a focus on story work, a focus on growing your own creative confidence. It's many, many, many different threads. And uh, you can find out about that at um, hagitude.org. Hagitude.org. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, we've been speaking with Dr. Sharon Blackie about her latest book, Hagitude, Reimagining the Second Half of Life. Dr. Blackie, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today and sharing all of your wisdom. Uh, it's been a real pleasure to speak with you. And thank you. It's been a pleasure for me too. Thank you for the very thoughtful questions. It's much appreciated.
Thanks for joining us for Branches of Wisdom. Our producer is Jacob Steele. The show is edited by Abdo Habani. And I'm your host, Ross McKeechee. Watch all our conversations on YouTube by searching for Banyan Books or listen on your favorite podcast platform. Please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews and comments. We love to hear from you. For all our live events, books, and more, visit us at banyan.com.